Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's Bible study is Lesson 2 over the book of Isaiah, chapters 2 through 6. All right. Ready for Bible study. We're in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 and following. Isaiah is the largest prophet as far as uh, what the amount that he writes. He's among the major prophets. There's minor and major prophets, remember. It's got nothing to do with their reliability, nothing to do with their importance. just has to do with how much they write. Of the majors... Isaiah is the major of the major. 66 books broken up in 39 and 27 books, which happens to be, coincidentally, the way your Bible's broken up, Old and New Testament. His, his uh, book follows, in some ways, the Old and New Testament. The first 39 are sort of dark, foreboding, uh, judgment, and as we're going to see tonight. And uh, the last uh, 27 are very bright, including Isaiah 53, which is uh, the, the, the gospel in the Old Testament. So, we're going to be seeing that, a beautiful book. We will not be finishing Isaiah, of course, uh, this fall. We're probably going to pick it up next spring, but nonetheless, we're going to be hitting certainly the, the highlights and some of the things we're going to be looking at tonight are incredibly important, like the virgin birth. How incredibly, how, how, what a disputed doctrine. Um, I, I can't understand that. To me, it's more likely that you would dispute some miracle. I mean, not to say that the, that isn't a miracle, but it, it's interesting that the cults particularly have a problem with Jesus' virgin birth. And the reason why they have a problem with it is because their bottom line is to say that he's not God. And I will tell you for sure, if he's not virgin born, he is not God. And so you, the whole thing unravels. So either it is true, like I said this morning, either it is all true or it is not at all. So let's pray and we're going to start. God, we thank you so much for uh, just being able to be together, to fellowship together, to get to know each other, to hear uh, testimony of how you've changed our lives, Lord, every one of us here who've trusted you, have had a life change. Uh, we've been converted. Uh, we've been brought out of darkness into the light, and we're so grateful for that. Thank you that you found us. Lord, we thank you that you're every day finding us and, and pulling us out of the, the wrong ways that we think and the wrong ways that we practice, and we know that a key to that is studying your word. And even though our lives may seem like a sieve, because it just pours right through and it doesn't seem to, we don't seem to retain a lot, but still... Um, it still cleanses us, Lord, and that's what we really need. You don't need us to be smart as much as you need us to be responsible, as faithful to you, uh, trusting you, God. I pray that that would be the result of that. We would grow deeper in our relationship with you as a result of our time together. Thank you so much, God. We pray you continue to bless our, our evenings together uh, this fall. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah, chapter 2, last time we covered chapter 1. Today we're going to be covering five more chapters, so... Uh, strap on your seatbelts. Uh, we're going to be reading fast and uh, stopping at different intervals and, uh, and discussing and or looking at some important uh, aspects. So the word of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it's a, it's a unique statement that you find in the prophets, both Old and New Testament, in particular uh, the New Testament uh, book of Revelation. John, every time he says something, he says, I saw it. I saw it, 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 I saw it. Isaiah says the same thing. So, so, so what does that mean? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. I don't know the answer to that. He's given us words, but, but he, he saw it. It was an experience. It was something more than just he woke up one morning and these pages were laying out in front of him. He fell into a trance. So this was something he was fully participating in, fully awake for fully uh, involved in all of his faculties were involved. Of course, he's seeing with his eyes or hearing with his heart, writing with his hands, and so we're very grateful for that. So just, just a point. Uh, 
So the word of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, that he saw concerning uh, Judah and Jerusalem, that was his focus, remember, not the northern kingdoms. Now it, it, now it will come about that in the last days, so here we are but in the second chapter, we're all the way to the end of your Bible, all the way to the end of the earth's existence, all the way into humanity. So he's about to tell you stuff that you would have already known if you'd read the Revelation. Of course, Isaiah is writing way before the time of Christ, some 700, 800 years before Christ. And he writes more, there, there's more contained in the book of Revelation about the end days than even Revelation, as far as just straight verbiage. You know, add them up, Isaiah says more, especially about the millennial reign of Christ, which is what's going to be of, of particular interest here. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, what would that be? It would be Mount Zion. That's a particular spot in the Middle East. You're traveling, we're traveling there here in about a month and a half, God's, God willing. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. In other words, not to say it's going to be taller than Kilimanjaro or taller than, uh, I don't know, Ararat or anything like that. It's just simply saying it's the importance of it. So, so right now, Jerusalem, does Jerusalem matter? Eh, somewhat. It's, it's on the news. Uh, it usually comes when there's conflict in the Middle East between the Israelis and the, and the Arab nations. But, but it, it not, it's not the mover and the shaker that a New York or a, even a Houston or certainly a Paris or a, or a Moscow or all these seemingly important cities. If there's coming a day in which that's going to change. It will be established as a chief of the mountains and be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Hmm. Many people say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that they may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may, may walk in his paths, for the law of the Lord will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it hasn't happened yet. Uh, does it say, uh, you can say in a small way that people are streaming there. Like I said, we're going here in a month and a half. There's lots of people that visit Israel, visit Jerusalem. But this is just a, a, a taste of what is to come. The end times are going to be where that is still going to be the focus of the whole world. Whatever survives, whoever is still left here, that's going to be their capital. Whether they like it or not, it's going to be their capital because Jesus is going to reign over the earth, as we're going to see in just a minute, on the throne of David, which has always been an earthly throne, from Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is going to be key here. In fact, let's, let's go there. Uh, why is this happening? Because Jesus is going to be king over the whole world. We're, we're, hold your place in Isaiah 2. Turn to Isaiah 9. And this, is, this is one we read pretty regularly on Christmas, uh, around the Christmas season, because it, it predicts, it's predictive of, of Jesus' uh, first coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. Sounds very Christmassy, doesn't it? That certainly is. Well, isn't that what happened at Christmas? Sure. So here's the prophecy. 500, 800 years before Jesus was born, predicting this. A son will be given to us. And, but here's the part that we haven't seen yet. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Again, we're not Republicans. We're not Democrats. We're monarchists. We're looking for the king. King is coming. It's going to be great. You won't get to vote. That'll also be great. You won't need to vote. That'll also be great. It won't be crooked. That'll be really great. Everything that's right will be done correctly. Nobody will be getting away with a single thing. No corruption. Absolutely. Of course, if you have corruption at the top, you should expect corruption all the way through. And, you know, of course, that's where we are today. 
But that will change. Notice, this is a prophecy of, and we read it for Christmas time, but it actually is a prophecy concerning his second coming. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. So this is a king sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. Jewish. Going to go over the whole world. Eternal Father, Prince of the Peace, there will, there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from then on and forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Mary, when she was to conceive by the Holy Spirit, the angel tells her the same thing. He, speaking of Jesus, will be great. It will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the same thing, the throne of the Father David. Jesus, listen, Jesus has always occupied the throne of heaven. Jesus is going to reign in heaven. Jesus isn't going to reign in heaven. Jesus is currently reigning in heaven. What, what isn't happening, what we haven't seen, is Jesus reigning on the throne on earth. The, the Davidic throne is never in heaven. Don't, don't translate this into some kind of heaven issue. This is an earthly throne. David was a Jew. He reigned in Jerusalem. He didn't reign anywhere else. He didn't reign over anybody else. The Son of God, who is a Jew, of the descendant of David as far as his physical lineage, is coming to reign on the earth, on a throne called the throne of David, which, of course, is in the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah has a lot to say about this, and there are more, there's more than Isaiah has said on, about Jesus' earthly reign than there is in the entire New Testament in the book of Isaiah. So we're gonna, this theme is going to come up constantly. The throne, the throne, the throne. Now, can you see, with the verses that I just read to you in Isaiah, can you understand why when Jesus came and started doing all these miracles and started saying that he was the Son of God, how they expected at any moment that he would usher in that kind of kingdom? He's the king, right? He's of the line of David. He's a Jew. He's working all these miracles. He's the Son of God. Are we, is the kingdom coming today? They were expecting it. There, can you see how they would have read that in Isaiah? As we have now hindsight, we know that there's been 2,000 years since his first coming, between his first and his second, and they failed to see that his first act as king, if you will, would be to lay down his life for his subjects. That's what he's done. That's the first phase one, is to build his kingdom. That's where we are today. His kingdom is growing. Phase two is to bring it about in an earthly, physical sense, which is what's being prophesied here to Mary and told us here in the book of Isaiah. Notice the angel quotes Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? So an angel quotes the Bible. Why? Because it's 100% true. He doesn't say, don't trust it. He's saying, no, it's just like he promised. Just like he promised. So back to Isaiah chapter 2. So God, nowhere does it say that God is uh, close to being through with Israel and they factor in heavily in, in times to come. I mean, just a simple survey of what we're doing right now. I mean, think about it. Your entire Bible was written by Jews with the exception of what the two books Luke writes. Uh, 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 our heroes, you, you name a hero from the Bible, you're pretty much talking about a Jew, almost without exception. What's, who's your hero? David, uh, Moses, uh, Abraham, uh, John, uh, Peter, uh, Paul. You're talking about Jews. So Jews factor heavily into the future. We study Jewish writings every Sunday. Uh, then Messiah is our Savior. Our, our earthly dwelling is going to be called the New Jerusalem, which, of course, has always been the capital city of the Jews. So the Jews factor heavily. In case you want to read more about how God is, is, uh, is factoring in the Jews in the future, you can read Romans 9, 10, and 11. I would recommend that to you. Verse, uh, verses 3 through 5. 
Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up. We read, we read verse 3, verse 4. He will judge between the nations. Here's telling, again, it's telling us, what, what's the earthly reign of Christ going to be like? It's not going to be this representative form of government. It's not going to be voted in. It's not going to be, he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because they're not going to be fighting not be war, because the Prince of Peace is going to put an end to all that. That's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. There's, there is uh, every reason, because the Prince of Peace isn't reigning today, for us to keep and bear arms, both as individuals and also as a nation, because I guarantee you this is not a safe place. And the hearts of men are wicked, and they're devious, and they're conniving, and they, there will continue to be wars. In fact, the wars, according to the Scriptures, are going to get even worse. Hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Wow. Won't that be awesome? It's interesting, you know, emblazoned on the front, that, that verse is emblazoned on the front. Did you know that? On the front of the UN? There it is. That verse. Now, you can't, can you read that? It's kind of hard. That's Isaiah chapter uh, 2, verse 3. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 3. I'm sorry, 4. There it is, and it's almost repeated verbatim in another place in Isaiah. And it's also repeated verbatim also in the, the book of uh, another book. <laughs> Minor prophet, I can't remember. I can't remember uh, which one it is, so it'll come to me. Huh? How's that? Uh, neither. It may be Hosea. Okay. So I'm going to go with that because I can't look it up right now. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I know that those books all have something to say along those lines. They all repeat this whole thing about you won't need spears anymore, won't need swords anymore. They're going to, the, the king is going to come, he's going to reign, there's going to be peace. And we can't imagine that. We can't imagine that. Jesus told his disciples as they were going, remember, to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, bring a sword. Interesting. Wow, he's the Prince of Peace and can't he enforce peace? Yes, he definitely can, but that wasn't the purpose of his first coming. The purpose of the first coming to bring peace on the inside. But peace on the outside, guys, uh, it's coming, but it's not here. Uh, keep your powder dry. Or, or don't, you know. I mean, somebody takes you out, you get to go to heaven. I think that's not a bad deal, honestly. So emblazoned across the UN, there you have it. So, so even they, it, even though I don't think they believe it, uh, but, but here they have it. Here it is part of our th the theme of the UN. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for thou hast abandoned thy people. So he instantly shifts to where it currently is at that time. The house of Jacob, because they are filled, they are filled with the influences of the East. It's Eastern mysticism, it's uh, necromancy, it's idol worship. Uh, they are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold. I mean, they're wealthy. There's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased. Uh, but do not forgive them. Wow, what a statement. Ooh. Do not forgive. We, we are not excluded from this. We like to think we don't worship things that are made by our hands, but we worship our science. We worship uh, medicine. We worship our 
weapons of war, we trust in these things. It's what you trust in. It's what I'm relying on. It's what I, my confidence, my portfolio, uh, all these things that, that we can put our trust in. We're no different than they. Verse 10, enter the rock. This is an interesting statement. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. So again, pride is the root of sin. From the terror of the Lord, the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Wow. God has a problem with pride and arrogance. He's got a problem with all sin. But he really has a problem with pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance is sort of the threshold. It's sort of the door that you have to make it through in order to get to the other sins. Because my pride and arrogance won't let you tell me that I'm wrong. My pride and arrogance won't let me see that the Word of God says that the things that I'm doing is sin. And so, so, so the threshold that has to be crossed in my life in order for me to deal with my other sins is this whole issue of pride and arrogance. Revelation uh, 6.16, speaking of the rocks and, and hiding, it's just similar, very similar language because... Well, because the book of Revelation expects you to know the book of Isaiah. They said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, both of these books, the book of Revelation requires you to be very versed in the book of Isaiah and the book of Daniel, uh, not to mention the whole book of Old Testament in particular. Requires a command of the Old Testament. So uh, let's, let's keep going here. And, against, and I will be against all the cedars of Lebanon. Was God got a problem with trees? Keep reading. Are the trees causing God problems? You know, they're just in rebellion. Didn't you know that? That's why we've got to cut them down. You know, turn them into paper or something, right? Think about it. Against all the oaks of Bashan. Eh, there's the nasty old oaks over there on the other side of Israel, right? Against all the lofty mountains. It's the mountains and the trees, Right? And all the hills that are lifted up against every high tower and every fortified. He's got a problem with all these inanimate objects. Does he really? No, these, these are illustrations. They're idioms of what we are. We're, we're like these mighty, we, we think we are, mighty trees and mighty mountains, and we can't be conquered and we can't be undone, and nobody can stop us again. It's the pride and arrogance thing. I'm big, I'm strong, I'm important because everybody says that I am, and so I must be, including my mom. Well, no. No, you're not. God's going to abase all that. The pride of man will be humbled. He goes on, it's against the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful crafts. So he's, it's all these things that we trust in, all these things that we reckon ourselves in. I'm important because I have this, this important position. I'm important because I have this important stance, because I own this property, because I have this, because I have that. He's going to abase all those things, it says. But the idols will, be, will completely vanish and men will, here it is the same statement again like we have on the screen, men will go into caves and rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty. When he arises to make the earth tremble, in the day that men will cast away to the moles and the bats the idols of their silver. And I don't know why. I honestly don't know. Why. Well, the moles and bats, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's, they're, they're the lowest of the creatures as far as the eyes of the people. So, so, so the least important animals are going to receive all these things that they used to worship, these idols. They will cast in the idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the, here, the caverns and the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. And again, Revelation stuff there. For the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. 
Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, and for why should he be esteemed? So he continues to say this stuff. It's interesting in the book of Revelation there in chapter 6. It says, Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. You ever been around a lamb? You just have a hard time sleeping at night because lambs terrorize you? You know, they're just so threatening. I think I told you the story of my hometown was Bridge City, my hometown alma mater high school, Bridge City, and our, our mascot was a cardinal. You know, little red birds. You ever been attacked by a cardinal? Me neither. Why couldn't we be the lions? I don't know, the tigers, the rams, the, I don't know, the, the rebels, the, we get to be the cardinals flying around, flying, we're going to come peck you if you don't watch out. Well, even more ludicrous, it seems, is the wrath of the lamb. Lambs don't hurt anybody, do they? See, you have to know, you have to know who that's speaking of, right? Yes, he's, he came as a lamb, but he will not return as such. He's coming back, indeed, as a lion. So we're ready for chapter 3. So we burn through chapter 2 pretty fast. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both the supply and the support and the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Can God do that? Can he, can he, because of our disobedience, yank out the things that are underneath us? Isn't it true that if we just continue to work hard and, and, uh, and uh, do what we think is right, that even though God is against us, we're going to still get what we want? Isn't that true? No, it's not. Apart from the favor of God, we have nothing. It doesn't exempt us from going to work, making good decisions, balancing our checkbook. But apart from the favor of God, we have nothing. And the Jews thought, oh, we're fine. We don't need this. Look, we have a great king. We have an impregnable city. We have a powerful country. We have an incredible army. Well, that can all wash out. It can all wash out. And it's just as simple as removing the supply of bread and supply of water. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, the skillful, skillful enchanter, I will make mere lads their princes. Oh, wow. That's some judgment. Capricious children will rule over them. It's an idiom of disintegrating society, and that idiom is that children are running things. Children are. They're not listening to adults. They're not listening to the elders. They're not paying attention. They're not, we're not, as a culture, exalting the ones who really know stuff. We're paying, not paying attention to them and paying attention to this and whatever the new thing is. And that's what it is. Again, nothing necessarily against the kids, just simply the fact that God is judging them. How do you know when God is judging a nation? We talked about it in Sunday school, didn't we? Look at the, look at the rulers. Who is, who's God letting be ruler over us? Because you may not like him, but here's what you need to learn to like, is that God's in charge and he put him there. Well, you need to deal with that. It's an answer to a question of, is God in favor of the United States? I'm thinking the answer is no. I'm thinking the answer is no. Because notice, his judgment upon this nation who's disobedient to him is that he puts the wrong people in charge. Kids. Uh, let's, let's, well, let's, let's read a little bit more, then we're going to go back and take a look at this. Well, let's, let's, let me comment on this, and we'll go take a look over in the book of Romans. Maybe you could head over there. Romans chapter 1. So, so the rebellion and the dominance of children and youth in a culture is always a yardstick of how bad things have gotten. So is, listen, homosexuality. 
those two things have always historically marked the downturn or the, the falling apart of a culture. Again, can we blame the children for the falling apart of a culture? Of course not. Really, truly, in defense of the homosexuals, you can't blame them either. They're not the cause, they're the result of. So, so I'm not favored homosexuality. Please don't get me wrong, I think it's a sin. Not think, I know that it is. Scripture's very clear on it. But they're not the cause. The cause is turning your back on God. The result is that you get the wrong leaders and you get people who don't know who they are. Now, homosexuals. So let's go take a look, look at it over there. We didn't read all of it this morning. We looked at it some of it this morning. Hold your place in Isaiah. We're going to come back there. But Romans chapter 1, the, the, the degrading of a society, the steps are shown here because of what happens to us when we turn our back on the truth. So the wrath of God, verse 18. Chapter 1, Romans 18. Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It, that's, by the way, the, to, the word revealed there in the Greek is a constant process. It's not going to happen. It is currently happening. The wrath of God is revealed against, on, on, revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress what? The truth in their unrighteousness. So, so we live in sin and rebellion against God. It suppresses the truth. Nobody can hear it because of the way we live. Because that which is not about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them. It's just an inescapable thing. It's inside of people. It's just built. It's hardwired. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what, that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, we looked at this verse this morning. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. That's the fall. That's the problem. Everything else is a consequence from here on. Even though they did not honor him as God or give thanks, they became futile in their speculations, their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, you can say whatever you want to. They became fools. In exchange the glory, here's a consequence, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. We say, how dumb. Listen, the dumbness was not what they're doing here. It was what they failed to do in the previous two verses. They failed to acknowledge God. That's what's dumb. That's dumb. Therefore God gave them over, here's a consequence, to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God, that's what happens, for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire for one another, men with men committing indecent acts receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. It's very clear in the Scriptures that it's a sin. But notice, it's a result of us turning our back on God as a culture. So it's always a mark of where we are in a culture when you see the wrong people ruling and the level of homosexuality. Homosexuality and, and bad people in leadership is always a part of things. But the fact that it's dominant tells you we're on a... You know, the bottom is here and we're probably right here. You can, it's, it's, a hist, it's, it's a matter of history. And, and let me just comment on this. You know, in, again, not, again, I have, a, there's a certain amount of respect I have for the culture as messed up as they are. But you have people today that are uh, honestly not hypocrites. So you have a person who is, has a gender confusion issue. And they're not just confused, they're determined to be someone else. 
So they get reassigned. You know what I'm talking about? Sex, sex change. All right. As, as much as you want to talk about people, that person is not a hypocrite. You, you've, if you will, you've got skin in the game. There's a certain amount of respect I have for the commitment they have to their deviancy. You've got to respect that. They're, they're, they're that confused. You're, you're so confused that you would go all in like that. So, so you understand, this isn't just people saying, I'm just going to do something different. No, this is a totally changed way of thinking. This is what happens when God gives us over. The only thing holding us back from this is God. And God is removing the stops, taking them out. If you continue to do that, here's what happens. The culture becomes this. You have people that are this confused, so committed that they get everything reassigned. That's commitment. That is disturbing, very. We are at the bottom, near the bottom. Let's keep reading. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Again, that's the problem. They don't acknowledge him. He's a real God, and we have to answer to him. They don't give thanks to him, recognizing that everything they have that comes from him. They did not see fit to acknowledge him. That's reflecting back to, to verse, uh, uh, what was that verse? His, uh, back in verse 21. They did not acknowledge him any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. How can that person be so depraved? Because that is a judgment from God. That's what happens. How can it get that bad? Well, God instills it. It's a judgment from God. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, vandals of evil, disobedient to parents. That's where I want to stop. Well, here we are back in Isaiah. Flip back over there. So when kids get in charge, what is that? It's a judgment of God. It's a judgment of God. Uh, we don't have to do what God says. We can continue to have our good families and our good country. And uh, no, you can't. You turn your back on God. God will only reason why you have those things because God's enabling you to have. It's a blessing from God. Good rulers, uh, sensible, reasonable people. What happened to all the reasonable, sensible people? Look, they're all vanished. What happened to them? It's God has taken out the stops. It's it's a consequence. It's it's what happens. So, so it's an idiom of, like I said, of, of the disintegration of our society, both the, the, the rule, if you will, of bad people and uh, homosexuality. These are both very clear markers of where we are. So back to Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. That's where we are. Youth will be... In, will storm against the elder, where we are. The inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be a ruler over us. How desperate it is. Kind of like if you have a pulse, you get to, you get to be king. It's, it's sad. And with the previous election, not this previous one, but the, pre, well, the previous one and the one before that, it was sad that we had no more to choose from than what we had. Is this where we are as America? The, the two people we're voting for as the leaders of our country are two people that are, what? How did we ever get to this place? You're, you're reading it. Here it is. This, is. this is the progression of when you turn your back against God. 
what happens to a nation. It's going to go all the way down to, like I said, if you pretty much have a pulse. You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, because other people don't have one. And these ruins will be under your charge. And on that day, you will, you will, it reminds me of, uh, what was that, Sanford and Son? Remember, remember uh, what was his name, Sanford? Um, and Lamont. He said, one day, son, this is going to all be yours, this big jump pile. That's what these guys are saying. Come and rule over this pile of rocks. Thanks. Wow, nothing left, right? Just because you've got a cloak. I will not be your leader, verse 7, on that day, protests. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak, and you just thought I was good. I'm not. For you should not appoint me ruler over the people, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech, the speech of their nation was against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. Notice, it's, again, it's judgment. So, so these things are happening to them, and they're scratching their head. How did these bad people get in charge, and how did we get to the place where we are in society? Because you turn your back on God, and this is the consequences. This is how it happens. The expression, note, for Jerusalem has stumbled, verse 9. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not envy or conceal. Woe to them, for they have bought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will, it will go well. So say, say to the righteous it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly for them. It's just that simple. It's just a simple recipe. You want to do, you want to do wrong, you're going to receive wrong. For what he deserves, it will be done to him. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children. It, not necessarily by age, but by experience and by capability. Women rule over them. Oh, they must all be married. <laughs> yeah, me neither, Tom. Maybe, can you see me in the bathroom? I've got to run out really fast. <laughs> Again, the children and the women aren't to blame. The question is, why isn't there men doing what men are supposed to be doing, which is taking responsibility? See, it's, it's a consequence. We live in a culture today where children are, like I said, rise of homosexuality, large, large, uh, a large amount of, of that, and, and the rise of this disobedient group of, 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 uh, of young people and inexperienced people. And the consequence, again, is because of our decisions. So we're paying for that. The rise of people who are in leadership who don't deserve to be there, who shouldn't be there. It's a consequence. I, I don't know about y'all, but since, well, for a while now, since I've been paying attention, I've wondered why things are going the way that they are. And then when I read stuff like this and I read the book of Romans, I'm like, oh, now that makes sense. Because we prayed hard. We fasted. We asked God to change. And we asked God to, to give us good leaders. And, and sometimes he intervened and we got better than we deserved, but still it's still going, you know, plateaus a little bit, goes down more, down more, down more. Where, where's, where's the turnaround? I don't see it. For my people, their oppressors are children, women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction uh, of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. Corruption. What you do, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their 
their feet. Any, any ladies here with uh, toe rings? No, not you, right? Who was it that I saw earlier with a toe ring? Valerie, my wife, okay, besides that. <laughs> that's, that's what it's talking up here. Now, these aren't evil or wrong, but notice they're, they're, they think we're awesome because we have all these things and we're so finely dressed. And again, their whole attitude, just like the men, is we don't need God. We're fine. I got tons of jewelry I can cash in if God turns us back on us. Well, it won't do any good. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. Yee. The Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take the beauty of their anklets and their headbands and their crescents and their ornaments. It's like he turned over their purse, right? Their ornaments and their dangling earrings and their bracelets and their veils and their headdresses, their ankle chains and their sashes and their perfume boxes and amulets. And guys, it's not just recently that ladies started liking stuff like that. <laughs> Isaiah rides 800 years before Jesus. Their finger rings and their nose rings and their festal robes and their outer tunics and their cloaks and their money purses and their hand mirrors and their undergarments and their, their uh, turbans and their veils. And now it will come about uh, that instead of a sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a wet, uh, well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of the fine clothes, uh, donning of sackcloth, the branding instead of beauty. For men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn, deserted, and des and deserted she will sit in the ground. Wow. Wow. This happened to them. This isn't just somebody blowing smoke. This is, you're, you're reading, it wasn't at the time, it was prophecy, but today it is history. Chapter 4 brings us, we're snapping back into the future things. Verse 1 uh, goes, with, goes with the previous chapter, honestly. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. It's going to be desperate times. Desperate times. But in that day, here's a very important prophecy from your Old Testament book of Isaiah in particular. In that day, it says, The, the, the day that the branch, I don't know how many of your translations have the branch capitalized, capital B, because you're reading New American Standard. Well, who else has? I'm just, I'm just, it's just a survey. Somebody else has something other by the, what do you have? It's NIV? Or New King James? Okay. Living's got branch that has a capital B, though. That's a translation. It's not a, it's not a transliteration, it's a translation. Whoever your translators are saying, they're recognizing that this is referring to someone who deserves a capital letter. So in that day, the branch, we're going to talk about that in just a second of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. So it goes from this great curse and all the things that are going to happen, he's flashed to the, from the current day, that day, to all the way forward to when something's going to be happening in the future that's going to be such a blessing for Israel. This word branch is significant, it's important, because there is a great, uh, I shouldn't say a great, there is a large debate over some, a seemingly inconsistency in the Scriptures. The inconsistency is with reference to this verse in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. That, that was spoken through the prophet, so Jesus is from Nazareth, and of course he was called a Nazarene. But the problem that it is, is that the writer, in this case who is Matthew, says that this was a word from the prophets. You read in the New, Old Testament, you will not find that statement in the Old Testament anywhere. So people say, see, see, the Bible's not accurate. You can't trust it. Well, again, every time you find a confusion or a contradiction in the Scriptures, the, the simple solution is to say it's between your ears because that is where it is. Because if actually you spoke Hebrew, 
you would see this message, but it's contained here in other places. But, but the word Nazarene and the word branch are directly related to each other. This word branch is the word in Hebrew, netzer. It's the base word for the, for the word Nazarene. A Nazarene or Nazareth or Netzareth, as, as they would have called it. A Netzer was, was a branch that grew out of the roots of a tree. When you travel with us to Israel, among other things, we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You're going to see these trees, these olive trees, that are upwards of 2,000 years old or over 2,000 years old, literally in the same place where Jesus was with his disciples. It's very, very impressive. Very old trees. The older the tree gets, the less it produces in the top. And the way an olive tree compensates for that is it produces branches from its roots. In the Hebrew, it's the word netzer. So, when the, so the, the, the possibility is that if the tree dies, the roots will take over and they will produce a new tree. So, so the picture in the Old Testament is that Jesus comes from the root of David. He's called that. He's called the netzer, the branch. So it's not, just a, it's not a branch in the way we think of something that comes on the end of a limb. It's something that comes from the bottom, not from the top. That makes sense? So, but if you spoke Hebrew, even though you don't see this phrase in the, in the Bible in the English, it is very much there in the Hebrew. So again, contradiction is somewhere halfway between you know, one of our ears uh, in there. He's the netzer. He's the branch that's coming. It's an Old Testament uh, statement of the idiom of who the Messiah is going to be, that he would be a netzerine is the same thing in their minds. So it all comes together here in Isaiah and other places. Verse 3. And it will come about that he who, sit, who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone is recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's going to be some bad times with Jerusalem, but there's going to come an end when the remainder are not going to have bad at all. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst and by the, the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and even smoke and brightness of flaming fire by night. Does that sound familiar of anything that's happened in the past with Israel? Do you recall what was it? Where it was, first of all, where was it? It was in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem. But notice, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't figurative. It was literal. Literally, is one of the things you need to remember as you're picturing the children of Israel walking through the wilderness, it's a very hot place. It's very much a desert. It could be a, might as well be a moonscape. Is that there was a cloud over the top of them everywhere they went. Isn't it nice on a hot, hot day? You're out there and you're just like burning. All of a sudden, this cloud comes up. It's just like, <sighs> You imagine a cloud just following them everywhere they go. This canopy and a bright fire at night. They could walk by the light of the fire at night. They could walk as far as God wanted them, wherever he wanted them to go. And during the daytime, they had this canopy saying, that is coming again. A literal, the way I read it. The same kind of thing, but for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. There will be a shelter to give shade by the heat of by day and refuge and protection from the storm and from the rain. God's going to protect them. It's coming. It's going to be a supernatural thing. It's going to be intervening uh, in their lives uh, in a similar way that he's done in the past. Isaiah 5. Let me sing a now for a well-loved, my well-beloved. Now, who is that? Let me sing now for my well-beloved. Who's the beloved of God? Do you know? Of course you are, we are, but Jesus ultimately is. This is my what? Beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. So this is a song of the father. The father is singing about the son. 
It's the story of the father and the son and their project, which is Israel in this case. Let me now sing of my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. Who would that be? Keep reading. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with a choice vine. This is just standard procedure. If you're going to plant a vineyard, this is kind of the way they did things. Israel's full of stones. Got very rich soil, but you, you, have to, you have to maintain it. He dug all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choices of vines and built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and expected it to produce good grapes. Of course, you worked that hard. And it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could, there be, could I do for my vineyard that, I have, that, have, not, that has, have not been done? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Now, you're getting God's perspective. The purpose of the Bible as is, is, is nice it is, is to learn about yourself, is actually to get God's perspective on things. In fact, you will be a better person. You want to change your life? You want to make a difference? You want to, want to be who you're supposed to be? Know who God is. So we can't know. Why, why is the world confused, and why do we have rulers in the wrong place? Because we don't know who God is. Again, we fail to acknowledge Him. We fail to give thanks. And the consequences are we have this depraved mind. The consequences are we worship idols. The consequences are, like I said, this, this increase of sexual sins and all these things. It's just, it's, it's a consequence. Not expected. So let me tell you what I will do. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. So, so the picture in the Bible all the way through the book of Job, other places, is that God hedges up our lives, that there is a devourer out there who wants to destroy us. And the only thing standing between us and him is God. I tell people, they say, well, should we tithe? I said, yeah, should you pay your rent? Of course, if you're renting somewhere. So paying a tithe is paying, paying rent on your, the breath you're breathing. I'd recommend that you keep up with that. Just kind of, you know, kind of a nice idea, I think. I think it's a good idea. You're paying rent on air. So, so God is letting you live and keeping out the bad. But if you turn your back on him, well, watch. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or hoed, nor, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no more on it. God can do all those things. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah his delightful plant. And thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no room, so that, they have to lie, uh, so, so that you have to lie alone in the midst of the land. So he's people who are using and taking advantage of people is what he's talking about there. So, so you have this, this protector. God is protecting us, and God has removed the protection of Israel for now 2,000 years. So just check out a little of Israel's history since the time of Christ. Unbelievable horror. Here's the prediction. So, so I come to them, and by the way, Jesus quotes or tells the same story, if you, if you would like to turn there. In fact, let's, let's go there, Matthew chapter 21. Hold your spot. Jesus uses the same story as judgment, as giving them perspective on what God is going to be doing to the nation of Israel, and he did that exact thing. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 36, 33 through 44. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. 
There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press and built a tower. Sounds very similar to Isaiah, doesn't it? Because he, he's the inspirer of Isaiah. It's the same story. He rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Of course he would. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing. But afterwards, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the tower, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Here's our answer. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to another vine grower, and he will pay, and he will, and who will pay him the proceeds of the of the proper season. So they're correctly interpreting that. Yeah, that's the way a vine grower should do things, but but the, the owner of the land should do things. But he says they don't realize he's talking to them. So Jesus says, verse forty-two: Do you never read the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? And this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our size. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You had the hedge. You had the vat. You had the tower. You were the vineyard. And I'm here to get my produce, and you're going to kill me? It will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit, and he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but whomever upon it falls, it will be scattered them like dust. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable. They'd read Isaiah before. They understood that he was speaking about them. They'd been made. God already told them. He promised it. And here it was. So not long after Jesus is crucified, God takes everything away from them. Their city. Their worship. There hasn't been Judaism since the first century. I know there's Judaism out there, but it's a reinvention. It has nothing to do with the Old Testament whatsoever. Because it has no sacrificial system. A Jew without his temple and without the blood sacrifice is not well, I shouldn't say they're Jewish, but they're, they don't, they're, the Judah, Judah as a religion, Judaism as a religion has ceased to exist, has for 2,000 years. God took it all away, says you won't do what I say, so that's what happens. So we're getting, again, the divine viewpoint, which is, which is ultimately what matters, is the reason why we read the scriptures. So Isaiah chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, what are those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that we... Have to, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall be desolate. There's going to come a crash, if you will. Crash, for sure. Many houses will be desolate, even great and fine ones, without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will be yield only one bath of wine. That's, like, sad. For an omer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. It's extremely sad. Great drought conditions. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they pursue strong drink, and who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them, and their banquets are accompanied by a lyre and a harp and by a tambourine and flute. So they're just having all these kind of parties, not realizing the judgment of God is falling on them. They do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the works of His hands. Verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is, is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor and her multitude are dim and are of reverie and, this jubilant, and the jubilant within her descend into it, that is Sheol, place of the dead. 
So the common man will be humbled, and the man of importance abased, and the eyes of the proud will also be abased, but the, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the Holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. He goes on there. So a consistent theme, the pride of the wicked will bring them down, and God will be exalted. Verse 17, the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and the strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy, so God's just turning it over to somebody else. What are those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if it were with cart ropes? Woe who say, let, let, him who, let him make speed, speaking of God. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. If God's going to do something, let him do it. Same people that said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, take yourself down from the cross. Same attitude. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near. In other words, they're just putting God, if God's going to do something, let him do it. Super dumb. And come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is a prominent verse. Certainly you should know that today. Called value relativism. We no longer have good and evil. You know that, right? That's, that's politically incorrect. We have values. So I value something and less value something else, and we just have collective values. There's no right and wrong anymore because there's no absolutes. Whew, crazy days. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What are those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight? What are those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drinks who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right? Therefore, as the tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses the flame, so their root will become like a rod and their blossom uh, blown away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Lord, Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord is burned against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuge in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent. His hand is not stretched out. He's speaking particularly of the judgment of the northern kingdom. Just wipes them out. He will also lift up a standard in the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it will be weary or stumble. No one slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor is the sandal strap unbroken. In other words, they're completely equipped. They absolutely have no failings whatsoever. Its arrows are sharp. All the bows are bent. The hooves of the horses are seen like flint. Its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness. Its roar, roars like, a, like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And shall growl over it in the day like a roaring, like the roaring of the sea. If one, as one looks, if one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. Whew! That's some tough stuff. I don't know about y'all, but I need a break. So I'm glad we have chapter six. So it actually is. We have a change in scenes, a change in directions. We're going to be finishing up with part of chapter six at least, because. Isaiah isn't necessarily in chronological order. For this point, we've been dealing chronologically as God brings prophecies, but Isaiah's going to stop now because I said we need a break. He's going to back up and tell us, like Leslie, he's going to tell us his testimony. So how did he ever get into this position as a prophet of Israel? Uh, he's uh, of the line of David. So he's wealthy, he's profitable, he's got all kinds of things he could possibly do with his life, and God just basically comes in and says, I need you to be my servant. So he tells us his story here. We're going to read it in Isaiah chapter 6. Not necessarily, like I said, in chronological order. So what happens here is, is his cousin, King Uzziah, you remember what happened to him? 
very prosperous king, honored God with his life, served God. God blessed him richly, better than most kings that had come before him or after him. He just had, every time he, every time he turned around, he just was victorious. Uh, he, he did things, he, everything he planned to do, God blessed. It was just this great thing. And then all of a sudden, well, in the process, he got full of himself. God has a problem with that. When you get full of yourself, you're taking credit for the things that God did. God has a problem with that. So he gets so full of himself, he's wanting to sacrifice in the temple. Of course, he's the king of Israel, but no, not even a king is allowed in the temple. You, you have to be a child of Levi. You have to be one of the Levitical priests. And because the Levites couldn't get there in time and he had other things to do, he took his animal, or he took, in this case, his incense inside the temple to burn it, something only the priests were allowed to do. Because why would he do something like that? Because he's an arrogant meathead. Haven't you been one of those? An arrogant meathead. You should have listened. You shouldn't have done what you did. But your arrogance and your pride got you in trouble. His got him in trouble. He, so he goes in there and he offers this, this incense because he's trying to move on. He's got things to do. He's important, don't you know? People, people look up to me and I, you know, just this, he disregarded the commandments of God. And so when the priests go in there and they see him, when they see him, they say, you shouldn't be in here. And as soon as they say it, it says the scriptures that leprosy broke out on his forehead. And he spent the rest of his days in a separate house and did not rule over the kingdom of Israel for the next 20 years of his life, more or less, and um, died of leprosy. So sad, sad story. So we pick that with that as background. We pick up Isaiah's uh, call into the ministry because it reflects on this day or that King Uzziah, the end of King Uzziah's reign. In the year, he says, chapter, one, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that's his cousin. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his road filling the temple. There's a lot of people that love to see that. I would say to you, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it because every time it happens in the Bible, Old or New Testament, everyone who experiences is literally scared to death. The good Isaiah is a great guy. He's scared to death. Watch. Seraphim stood above him. Each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, the seraphim, called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of the temple uh, trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was being filled with smoke. And then I said, what does he say? Yay, this is so fun. I've been waiting to see God. No. He says the same thing we see everybody say when they see God, they literally are scared to death. Woe is me, or I am ruined, I'm undone. Literally, I'm just like, un, like a shirt that unravels. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar of the tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, I guess, here I am. I, he lived through it. I might as well go, you know. I lived through this experience. So here I am, God. I guess, you know, since I'm alive, uh, you can send me. And uh, here's the story of 
of his call. And so we have this, this incredible thing that, that God reveals to him. Very few people get to see this. You have Isaiah gets to see this, Ezekiel gets to see the throne of God, and John. And that's pretty much it. So God, who's the creator of everything, only reveals himself to whom he chooses. And these, these three guys are the ones that get to see it. Interesting uh, that we live uh, today, and why can't we see God? Because he doesn't want you to. And I would say, you don't want him to. Until you're ready, until God says, until we get there and we're clean. But boy, the experiences you read in the Bible, man, every one of them are just absolutely frightened when they see him. So we live in three dimensions, right? You actually know you live in three and a half, more, well, actually four. But I call three and a half because we don't, can't really operate in the fourth one very well. So I live in length and height and depth, right? And I can, I can move pretty much at will within that. I can go forward, I can go backward, I can go up and down. But there's another dimension you live in called time. You also move within that, or I should say it moves you. We kind of talked about this morning, so you remember yesterday, don't you? But you can't go back to that. You are moving forward to tomorrow, but can you remember tomorrow? See, God can. God can. He knows tomorrow. So we can't go backwards in time. It is a dimension that we live in. God does not live in this dimension. God does not live in the height, the width, and the depth, or the time element that we live in. Our time-space dimension that we live in, God's not a part of it. Not that he doesn't know what's going on, but if he was a part of it, you would be able to see him. I can see Pete back there because he lives in the same dimensions I live in. We're moving forward in time, aren't we, Pete? We're older since, since the day we met. You're, you're more gray and I'm more bald. <laughs> We're moving forward. I can't go in tomorrow, but I'm going to head. I mean, God's God willing, and I can't go back to, to yesterday. So I'm moving forward in this dimension, but God lives in, people, people uh, suggest, an infinite number of dimensions and can reveal himself anytime he wants to. Jesus steps in and out of these dimensions in the New Testament. So he's fully physical, resurrected, and yet he breaks bread in front of these two guys who are on the road to, to Emmaus with him. And as soon as he breaks bread, they recognize who he is, and poof, he's gone. Is it like a cloud of smoke? You know, he's got a rabbit and a little hat or something like that. It's not magic. He's God, moving in and out of all the dimensions he lives in. Poof, he's in a room that's locked with all the windows and doors locked. How did he get in there? Fully physical. He's a human being. He's a Jew, in fact. How did he do that? Well, I don't know. I'm mean, just telling you, he's moving in and out of dimensions because God's capable of doing all that. He created all these dimensions. We live in a very limited uh, reality of what actually there is. Isn't there angels here? Don't you believe that? Why can't you see them? Aren't there demons? I would think you don't want to see those. Why can't you see them? No, they, they, they live in an existence that we're unaware of. We consider this to be real. Guys, this is just a small portion of what's real. I mean, it's nothing, not that this isn't real. This is real. So, but there's so much other stuff that's even more real, uh, for sure. So, so, so we have this story of Isaiah, and he's moved into another dimension where God can be seen, and God takes him there because that's what God wants to do. It's the only place, by the way, that the word seraphim is mentioned in your entire Bible. So who are these? What are these creatures? You have seraphim and you have cherubim, and they're described in similar ways, and some people, including me, think they're probably synonyms. They're words that refer to the same ones. They just have different functions in some places. We have similar throne room settings, but they're never called cherubim again. They're all, I mean, seraphim again, they're always called cherubim. 
Every time, like I said, anyone has this experience, it's never excitement and elation. It's always fear, like, just like uh, Isaiah has here. So, so this, this seraphim takes a coal off the altar. This isn't just any coal. This is a very specific coal. Off the altar and touches his lips. So I go to a fire and I grab with the tongs a, a hot coal and I stick it to your lips. What's that going to do? It's going to make you better or it's going to make you worse? So notice, it made Isaiah better. So behold, this has touched your lips. You're now cleansed. But it should have destroyed his lips, right? But it made his lips better. So I'm, I'm, I'm a, a people of unclean lips. I, my, our blasphemy and our, our rejection of God, and I'm part of this, and I'm responsible for this. And so he accepts his position in that. And yet this fire that should have destroyed his lips fixes them. How is that? It's a very specific fire. These tongs are coming off the altar where the innocent sacrifice was sacrificed. This fire represents the ongoing judgment of God. The ongoing judgment of God either has to deal with our sin by putting us away from Him or deal with our sin in the, in the opposite direction by dealing with an innocent substitute. An animal, in this case, that takes our place, ultimately predicting or looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. So, so, so God is going to be dealing with our sin and judgment. The fires of judgment will either cure you if you accept Jesus' sacrifice. So the, that fire will cleanse you and make you fully everything that God wants you to be, or it will destroy you. Fire is coming. In fact, it says we're going to be immersed in fire. Baptiz baptizing us in fire. It's coming for all of us. Judgment is. So not just our lips, right? They either fix you because you've allowed Jesus to be judged for your sins, or it will destroy you because you've decided to pay for your own sins, which is an option, not a recommended one. Verse 8, it's interesting, though. He says also there, it's always... You need to always keep this in view. Who will go for us? Who's us? Isn't God speaking? So is God not singular? Yeah, he is, but he's also three. Always, always, always is this concept in the Bible of the Trinity. Who will go for us? Here I am, Isaiah says. Send me. So we have these pictures, uh, several places, and I want us to go there real quick, and then we're going to be done because we're... Because we're done, nearly done. Uh, of throne rooms, and I want us to go to a couple of these. We have Isaiah's experience here. Let's go to Ezekiel's experience, one of them. Ezekiel chapter 1. And then we're going to end in Revelation. So, so remember what we saw there. We saw God on his throne, train of his rope, building the temple, seraphim with six wings, right? Now look at, look at Ezekiel. And the description that he has, he has a similar throne room experience. And, and notice the similarities and the differences. Verse 5. So he sees this vision. He's by the river Chabar. And he sees this vision. And within the figures, it resembles four living beings. He's talking about this, this picture that he sees, this glowing group of, of entities that are coming to him. These four living beings, it says, and this was their appearance. They had human form, so, you know, sort of a physical body. But everything else after this is going to not describe anything I know of that to be human. Each of them had four faces, four wings, and their legs were straight like the feet, uh, and their feet were like that of calves' hooves, and they gleamed like burnished bronze, and under their wings and on their four sides were human hands, and as 
As for their faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another and their faces did not turn. When they moved, each went straight forward. So they were faces were all in the cardinal directions and they moved in the cardinal directions. Never turned. Constantly moving. Facing the same direction, if you will. And as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, and for that, uh, and all four had the face of a lion and at the right, and on the face of a bull on the left, and the face of, the, of an eagle on the, on the final side. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above them, and each had two touching another, being uh, in two covering their bodies. And so we have this throne room scene there, and you got a picture of that, right? you got it all down, memorized. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 4. The final throne room scene that we're privy to. And there's a difference here. So in each case, we have these angelic creatures that are very odd, multiple wings, multiple faces, uh, specific faces. You have a cow, a, a man, an eagle, and, a, and an ox. I'm sorry, a, ma- a cow, a man, and an eagle, and what was the other one? A lion, that's right. So, so watch, watch what happens here in chapter 4. After these things, I looked, verse 4, verse 1, chapter 4. Behold, a store, door was standing open in heaven, and a first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So we have this third picture, this third prophet who gets this throne room vision. And he who was sitting on it was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. Well, that's different, isn't it? And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in the white garments and the golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps and a fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. In the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes on the front and behind. Similar description to Isaiah. I'm sorry, Ezekiel. The first creature was like a lion. There we have, right? Ezekiel described in that way. The second one like a calf. The third like the face of a man. The fourth creature was like an eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings and full of eyes all around within. And Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Sounds like the same similar situation uh, to Isaiah and the call of Isaiah, but did you notice the difference? So we have God, we have the throne, we have the creatures, they're uh, odd. We have one more thing though, what was that? One more thing in the throne room, we should say, in the New Testament, that was not in the throne room in the Old Testament. What was it? 24 elders. Where did they come from? Why don't we see them in the Old Testament? We have two different scenes of the throne room because these guys, these guys represent, now something's changed in heaven from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, they're humans there. These elders are referring to the leaders, both of Israel and of the church. So you have 12 tribes of Israel, that's half of 24. How many apostles? Yeah. So these represent the, old, the saints, if you will. So, so, so from the time of the Old Testament that Isaiah and Ezekiel see the throne room of God, there has been a sacrifice that has allowed humans, sinners, into heaven. That's changed. It's representative of those like us who are going to be there. You know, another interesting 
uh, comment, uh, observation of, of this whole uh, throne room scene is something that we find over in the book of Numbers. Now, how many of you read the book of Numbers because it's just inspirational? This many people and this many people and they traveled this far and they did this and there was this many number of the tribe of Dan, this many tribe of, tribe of Judah. What's the use of all, why do they call it Numbers? Because that's pretty much all it is. Very little uh, narrative. A whole lot of figures and calculations and people and uh, you know, where, where they were. And brother, the brother back there is new, new to Christ and new in the Bible. He's the book of Exodus. You're enjoying that. Well, Genesis, Exodus, man, pray through Leviticus and Numbers is going to be t- tough. Numbers is hard because it seems like, well, what is this in the Scriptures? Why, what does it mean? What is the practical application of the book of Numbers for me? Well, I don't know how practical it is, but it does tell us about the, the precision of the text. I mean, let me demonstrate it to you. The Numbers chapter 2 tells us, among other chapter 2, chapter 3, tells us, among other things, that the tribe of Israel didn't get to camp any old which way that they wanted to. When they traveled in the wilderness, they had to camp under specific signs. So they had four signs they were to camp under. The first sign was the sign of Judah. You know what his sign was? Happened to be a lion. Happened to be a lion. The second sign, Ephraim had three other tribes camping underneath his sign, which was the sign of an ox. Dan had four, three tribes camped under him. His sign was that of an eagle. Reuben had uh, four, three tribes underneath him. His sign was a man. So, so the, the throne of God, described in the Scriptures, was the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That mercy seat never, never went without blood. It was always a place with the sacrifice. So every time God was seated in the midst of his people, he was seated on the sacrifice of an innocent substitute because he can't be in our presence any other way. Else his holiness cancels, like light cancels out darkness 100%. His holiness would cancel out our sinfulness, and so God would be seated on the blood of an innocent sacrifice in order for us to survive his presence, if that makes sense. So, so that's the throne of God, which was in the middle of the camp, but raiding out on Four different sides were these camps, all under the same symbols that we see in the throne room settings of Ezekiel and of Isaiah and of the book of Revelation, the same faces facing the same directions. Interesting, isn't it? The precision of the text. Why? Because there is an author behind this. It's not us. It's not Moses. It's not Isaiah. It's not Ezekiel. It's not John. These guys were carried along, the Scripture tells us, as the Spirit moved them, and they wrote these things that all dovetail. They all come together. What you have in the text of Scripture, you don't find anything else. No quote-unquote holy writings, as masterful as some of those things are. They absolutely don't have the characteristics uh, of the Scriptures. Amazing stuff. Everywhere they went, interesting, as they went through the wilderness, they were modeling the throne room of heaven. Interesting, crazy stuff. So we'll stop right there. Questions? Something I missed. Thanks for your time and patience. Like I said, we're burning through a lot of text. It's a lot to go through. Uh, we can't get to every single little detail, but we are going to hit the big highlights and the big things are something extremely important. Next week we're going to be seeing, I think I misspoke, it's next week we're looking at the, the uh, virgin birth. Critical, critical doctrine. Critical doctrine. You're not allowed to say that you agree with the Scriptures and say that there is no virgin birth. I mean, you can't do that. Either you have to say that the Scriptures aren't true, 
and therefore there isn't a virgin birth. Or as we'll see, or you have to say if the scriptures are true, there is a virgin birth. And it does matter. It does. So I wasn't born of a virgin, were you? Not any of us. Because that's not how we get here. You don't get here through virginity, you get through the removal of virginity, right? Now, all the birds and bees around here, we've got the kids, don't listen. Go like this, la, 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 la. That's how we get here, you know? But Jesus got here differently through the womb of a virgin. That never happened before, never happened since. Why would God go to that problem, go to that issue? Why not just let him happen the way we are? Well, there's a very specific reason for it. And we see it's very, again, the precision of the text and how incredible it is once you pull it all together. It's like, wow, somebody smarter than us put it together. You can be sure. Ready to go? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for giving it to us, for the privilege we have to study it. Thank you again for this church, for this place that we have to meet, for the peace that we enjoy in this land. We pray, God, that it would continue. Uh, we pray, God, that you would bring to us better rulers. We pray, God, you'd have mercy upon our nation. We pray, God, that we would turn in repentance towards you and not continue to turn our backs against you, God, so that you can do what you want to. You want to bless us, but you can't because of our disobedience. Thank you, God, for teaching us. Thank you, God, for showing us uh, how wonderful you are and how wonderful this word that you've inspired is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.